Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Today, I'm here doing an interview with somebody that I'm very excited to talk to. Um, And I think you guys are going to be equally excited because she comes with a particular area of expertise that I know so many of us are interested in and want to know more about. So today we have Katie Asmus with us. She's a psychotherapist in Boulder, Colorado. Is that right? Yes. Welcome, Katie, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, So Katie is a psychotherapist. Like I said, she's also a mentor and a ceremonialist, which is an excellent word. And I want you to talk more about that. Uh (laughs) Um, Also a rites of passage guide and a trainer of other therapists. You guys offer a lot of trainings and I definitely want you guys to, or want you to talk about that later. So our listeners know where to find you and what kind of offerings you have. Um, You specialize in somatic therapies nature-based therapies and utilize all of that within EMDR. And so I wanted you to come on today specifically to talk about the blend that you do um, and how all of this uh, informs each other, regardless of which particular modality you're focused on at a given time. Um, But then when you are working with individuals, how this blends and kind of uh, is woven together um, and how you see all of that working and why you think it's such a good fit. So it's a lot to cover in 45 minutes. (laughs) Great. Do my best. I get like super excited and talk a whole lot. Our listeners are getting like overly excited and then, you know, saying way too many words. Um, (laughs) Mostly Katie, I want to just listen to you today. Um, And I was curious if you could share with our listeners uh, just about your journey as an individual and as a clinician of how you got to where you are today and where exactly are you today with all of this? Great. Such a big question, right? (laughs) And, um, and I really heard your, your asking about the blend too, of the somatic work and the EMDR work. And really my, uh, kind of master's level study started in 1997. I moved to Boulder went to Naropa University, which is a small Buddhist university, and studied, did my master's degree in somatic psychology with with an emphasis in dance movement therapy. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the work that really unfolded during my time in graduate school was that I was studying Peter Levine's work, Somatic Mm -hmm. Experiencing, which was, he had just come out with Waking the Tiger, his, I believe his first book in 1997, right? When I was in school, which was so impactful on me, his work and philosophy and really looking at the nervous system. And so I was studying all of that and I was simultaneously working in the wilderness and started seeing people have trauma responses in 
you know, educational settings. And in that moment, decided that I, I just had this passion around really teaching people about trauma from a body-centered perspective and had this feeling like everybody should know this. Everybody should understand really the wisdom of our body minds and how that wisdom is what originally really saves us in a time of crisis or, you know, a traumatic experience, but it's also then what keeps us stuck in that place. And really knowing that if we understand the pathways and the wisdom, we can essentially tap into those and open them up and help people really move through the process that they didn't get to move through, you know, in the original experience. And so that from the very beginning of my, my work has been kind of the essence of what I've seen, what I've um, kind of moved toward, what I've taught people about. And then in, I think it was 2004, I did my first EMDR therapy training. And at that time, there was a level two and a, or a level one and a level two. Now yeah. that's combined into the full training. And at that time, you know, it was newer, that was a while ago. And it was, there wasn't as much research. So a little bit more um, controversial at that time. And I took the training and had an amazing experience Mm -hmm. and amazing somatic experience, emotional experience in the training and started immediately doing it with my clients. And I felt like, oh, the somatic piece, the somatic awareness really helped from the beginning for me support recognizing if people were in the present moment, if they're in their uh, really window of tolerance and helping them move through any places of stuckness Mm -hmm. um, when they were there, really using the body as a resource and uh, a way to help them kind of keep moving through the process. And so ever since then, for me, it's been a big part of the work that I do and soon became a, an assistant in a training and a consultant. And it was just something that felt so natural to me. And I was invited right. into mm-hmm. that support. Mm-hmm. And the people that I worked with, the two trainers that I worked with very closely were both uh, graduates also of Naropa University and very strong somatic practitioners. And so both of their trainings were um, very based in, you know, incorporating somatic awareness and somatic interventions as part of the EMDR process. So I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit about um, the way that you experience the basic protocol being very somatically oriented, because since then there was a significant shift that occurred, uh, where most, not all, but most people coming out of their EMDR initial training have a much more cognitive focus, um, where they, they are sort of taught to track the negative cognition, and yes. have a, what I think is an overly heavy focus on the, the cognitive pieces of it. Um, so what really kind of stood out to you as this is what made the basic protocol more somatically oriented? Oh, this is such a huge question. I could talk about this question for hours because for so long, you know, I've heard many practitioners say, oh, 
EMDR is a somatic therapy. And I feel like it can be a somatic can therapy, be. but it's not necessarily a somatic therapy, even though, of course, there are sensations happening in our bodies when we're doing the process. But that's true of CBT. And exactly. if we the sensations and we're not working directly with them, that does not mean that we're doing somatic oriented therapy. Yeah, exactly. And in my experience, and as I said, I love EMDR, but what I've found from doing it for, what is that now? 18 years is that for some people it's amazing and it's like the best modality. And for other people, it's a little bit, you know, it's not quite their thing or, you know, the processing doesn't move. It's, it's a little bit more challenging. Mm-hmm. And, and along those same lines, I've found that it can be, you know, really amazing and help people heal things really quickly. And on another hand, for some people, it's overwhelming and really brings up the trauma too quickly. Yes. And so for me, you know, I think based since my training really is in somatic therapy, what that means to me is that everything I do, everything in no matter what moda- other modalities or tools I'm using, I am looking through the lens of body-mind connection and nervous system regulation. And for me, that is my guide around how fast am I going to go? How slow am I going to go? When am I going to pause and resource? Mm-hmm. When am I going to bring in interweaves of different sorts? Right. And from a somatic therapy perspective, also the, and EMDR, you know, really the idea is having one foot in the past and one foot in the present. So enough of us is in the present moment to create safety so Mm -hmm. that we can allow ourselves to feel and express and emote and move through somatically and emotionally the process and the fear that we didn't get to move through at the time of the traumatic incident or the stressful incident. Mm -hmm. And so with that, for me, the body becomes really the anchor in a way that I'm saying, like, can you feel your body? And not only can you feel your body, because when we can feel our body, that signifies we're here in the present moment, Mm -hmm. right? But can you tolerate the sensation And from a somatic perspective, I always, you know, what I say is that therapy is about helping people tolerate feeling because essentially if we can feel the sensations and our feelings, we feel them, we move through them. It's a wave. Then there's the, you know, the exhale, the completion, we're back to regulation. There is no trauma, right? Trauma is essentially the activation, fight, flight, freeze, or any nuance of that that moves through our body. And it's too scary to feel or move or express. So we tighten our muscles, hold our breath. And then that activation stays essentially stuck in the body becomes habituated. And then that's the becomes a baseline state. And then at that point, the body becomes the threat. Yes, And so we develop all these strategies of going away from the body, going away from feeling. And so as I'm integrating really the somatic work with EMDR or any work I do, I'm always assessing, can someone tolerate feeling? Mm -hmm. And so I'm always starting with assessing, can someone tolerate feeling good, right? With resourcing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because if they can't tolerate feeling good, 
Yes. And if they can't stay present for you know a bit of time right. with a resource, I'm not going to take them into any negative experience or stress or reprocessing because there's not going to be a more regulated place to come back to that feels safe. I love that way of understanding the resourcing phase because most people don't conceptualize resourcing and preparation as our chance to get a window into their nervous system and how much they really are ready for. We see that as, you know, okay, we'll, we'll tick these boxes of do calm, safe place, do container, and we're ready to go as opposed to what can they tolerate feeling? How much can they tolerate? And if they can't, then what does it mean to back up even further and slowly titrate them into a place where they can actually tolerate some affect in their body? Yes. And start with the positive is so much more gentle. <laughs> yeah. Less traumatizing. But even then, we have a lot of people that cannot tolerate the positive affect. Exactly. And, and we, you know, we talk a lot about uh, neutrality resourcing. Um, you know, uh -huh. what do we do when they can't tolerate the good stuff? Like what, like that's, that's the point where I think people get tempted to say, well, EMDR just won't work for them. Right. Uh, bail, right. Cause the, yes. the, the very first step of the basic protocol didn't work for them. And so we are out of options basically. Um, but this way of understanding resourcing says, no, 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 we just got to go slower and have a kind of a negative one step rather, <laughs> rather than a plus yeah. one step. And that's, that's the reason, you know, the, what you're saying is why do we need to do it that way? And what's all that valuable information that lies in that phase? If we take our time with it and know what we're looking for. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I developed a whole co-developed a whole continuing ed advanced course with, uh, this was half the course with Barb yeah. Mayberger at the Mayberger Institute on working with complex PTSD and finding alternatives to safe place. And how do you do that when, or calm place when somebody, you know, can't find that. Yeah. And this is, and we always talked about that, right? This phase might be a year, yes. you know, might be a year to develop the capacity to stay present with a sensation and to start with, with a positive sensation, which is complex. And, you know, the same part of the brain that registers pain registers pleasure. So as we grow tolerance for people to stay present with a pleasurable sensation, mm -hmm. we are simultaneously right. allowing people to begin to connect in with, well, feeling and trusting their own bodies, trusting their capacity to feel a sensation, which is also simultaneously growing capacity to feel something that's more distressing. And, uh, well, so one of the fundamental principles in any kind of somatic work is the idea of interoception, right? Being mm -hmm. able to be aware of what in the world is going on in here. And, yes. uh, you know, we spend a lot of time in our trainings talking about that cycle of story and state and how many problems come out of, uh, stories that we create in response to what we're feeling that are not actually rooted in a true awareness, but just our quick reactions to try to make the feeling go away. And yes. so what you're talking about is the, the parts of our brains that can hold interoception and really go slow, that can grow. 
right? Yes. We've been avoiding interoceptive awareness our entire lives for very good reasons due to trauma. That is a very atrophied and underutilized uh, part of us. And so this way of working with the positive begins to increase their interoceptive capacity so that they're not launching into story the minute they have a sensation and trying to bail out of the feeling, which when we get into, you know, the, the reprocessing phases of EMDR, if they can't stay with the sensation without moving quickly into a story to just try to slap a bandaid on it. Um, you know, we see clients like pull themselves into cognition and we're like, wait a second, that, (laughs) that doesn't match, or that didn't help at all. That, uh, that has to do with their lack of tolerance to feeling that sensation and going slow and letting the true story emerge. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and, and then from a contemplative psychotherapy perspective, this is where mindfulness comes in, right? Which is also that process you're describing is developing our witness capacity and our capacity to, to see, to name, to be with versus to go into the habit of the management essentially. And easy labeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 I and feel I, like a whole training that could be done, like just in that little segment of stuff. <laughs> yes. It's so true. It's so true. It also, I, and I feel like you and I could, I'm sure talk for, for weeks Hours. about yes. this. Here. Yeah, <laughs> yes. That there's something you just said, which is, I often say to clients and practitioners that, you know, it's, are it's the feeling like you were speaking to where, you know, it's like we're having this feeling and then we start looking around the world to look for the, um, it's like, why do I feel this way? Oh, cause you're looking at me that way. Right. Oh, because right. this happened. Oh, because, and that if we try to manage out there, it's not going to actually make any change. That's right. You're describing like society's struggle right now. Like, well, everybody, yeah. quit, you know, looking out, out, out <laughs> and just sit with sensation. Like, can we sit with our own fear and honor what is there? Because, oh my gosh, there's so much there for very good reasons. And collectively our interoceptive tolerance is just struggling for obvious. Yes. And I, I, I feel like so much of the uh, the reason why mindfulness is expanding really quickly and people feel such a draw to it is because intuitively we can feel like we don't know how to do that. We have right. no um, kind of rootedness in early life in our culture of how to sit still with sensation without moving into yeah. society story, right? Or yes. story too quickly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, we're probably a similar age here. And I feel like over the last couple decades with the, you know, explosion of technology and the immediate, you know, fix, quick fix at any moment, our brains and our nervous systems have become, come wired in a particular way where it's like we, if our computer click takes more than one and a half seconds, we start, you know, getting getting anxious or something. (laughs) Remember the days when it took like five minutes for your computer to turn on and and like multiple screens that you went through and, but you knew it was working out, it was coming. (laughs) Yes. I'm curious if you have uh, run into um, Yak Pongsep and the seven affective circuits. So Sandra Paulson did some work based on the seven affective circuits and the neural circuitry of the nervous system. There is such an overlap there. And that's like 
deep nerdy neuroscience, um, which I have like one pinky toe in, but mostly I get to learn from my colleagues about all of that. Um, Uh But something that he has spent a lot of time writing about and teaching about that is so applicable to our work in, in traumatology is the activation of the seeking circuit. It is so powerful. And it is, it is the, the part of our nervous system that looks into our environment to answer the problems within. And it gets so uh, easily trained by emotional learning. And, uh, you know, the underpinnings of memory reconsolidation is emotional learning. And that's always what we're working with in EMDR. And I, I wish that um, as therapists, we had more awareness of how powerful that seeking circuit is because we see it in our clients all the time. And it's like a, uh, well, when I, when I do this work with clients and we're working somatically with it, the number one metaphor that they end up using is it feels like a black hole that never quits consuming. And mm. I talk about a metaphor uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, current struggles collectively is just that constant need to wow. feel um, yes. a, a neurobiological reason, but the healing of that has to happen somatically. It is, uh, it is yes. a, um, a way of working with that craving and understanding what that craving really is. But as long as we're looking out and not in, there will never be enough. The craving just continues. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's so powerful. I haven't heard it in that terminology, but I feel it in me as you describe it. Go find his stuff. It's beautiful. It's so cool. Yeah. Great. And I just, my my brain goes to attachment theory too, and that connection with that. That's what it's for. You know, we, we need to be able to seek into our environment, to make noise, to get our needs met, to move towards when we're, you know, infants. And that's exactly what it was supposed to be. And yet when the, the satiation did not come in the way that it needed to because of attachment rupture. Um, yes. that seeking circuit basically never gets soothed and just yes. on all the time. And we see so many symptoms due to that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Anyway, I feel like I derailed us just slightly. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so good. Important little tidbit. So <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would love for you to, cause I'm conscious of time and want to make sure that um, we, you know, talk about things that I know our listeners will be curious about. I I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about what does the integration actually look like in sessions with your clients? Like when you're kind of uh, interweaving EMDR with somatic work and nature-based work, um, oh. all of that is like weaving together. Cause that's just pure magic. Yes. <laughs> uh, what does yes, that look yes. like in your practice? Oh my gosh. Well, the first, the piece about somatic and EMDR is so big that it's like, I don't even know what it would mean not to weave the two together. Uh But like I said before, I think part of that is really always looking through those eyes of um, how what's happening in the body using that as part of my assessment, looking at how present is the client in this moment, you know, in are they here and now? Are they regulated? What's happening with their nervous system, which is influencing every decision that I make, mm-hmm. essentially. And then I think, you know, I, I incorporate somatic awareness throughout everything. And part of that is, as I, cause I, you know, asking, what are you noticing? Or what are you noticing in your body is part of my assessment or around, can they even feel it? 
right. you know, are they here? Often I'll use somatic awareness as an anchor to help people stay more present, you know, as opposed to go off into the story or mm -hmm. go into the fear and I'll have people use their breath and breathe into whether it's somewhere that feels good, that can be a resource that can help to register a sense of a little bit more safety, or if there's some emotion that's moving and there's some fear to be with that, I might have them actually just breathe into that and do kind of a shorter set and have them really notice that as they focus on the sensation versus the story or the imagery, then it can start to shift mm -hmm. and there's some relief and some um, even sense of empowerment with that. that there's do you make that explicit for the client? Like, will you verbally observe to them, notice how it's different to be with sensation rather than be with, with thought or story? Um, I, I don't think I say it in that way, but I think I'm always listening for what's, what are the strengthened channels that the client's processing through, right? So I often on the check-ins will say, what are you noticing now? And then, you know, some people will primarily um, lean toward image. Others will primarily lead toward sensation, others story. And so if they're not, if their primary channel is not somatic, often I'll just say, and what are you noticing in your body? Hmm. And then typically I'm not necessarily bringing attention to it unless I feel like it's going to help in terms of keeping them more present or bringing in an inner weave that might, you know, might help them keep moving. So more, if I feel them sort of maybe like getting uh, overwhelmed with the story or overwhelmed with the emotion, mm -hmm. I might bring them back to the sens sensation as a way to, you know, it's like name it to tame it. When we name it, it can feel a little bit more tolerable. And then again, having that be a focus because like feeling my solar plexus without going into the story of what's happening can, again, just sort of be a bit of um, not, it's not containing, but it's helping someone again, tolerate, be in yeah. the moment and watch that this isn't permanent, that their system can move through it while giving a little bit of a break from, you know, primarily focusing on the image or the mm. emotion, which if that's something that's overwhelming, so more I'll bring it. Or if someone, if I'm like, I don't think this is actually processing, like they're kind of going from story to story or image right. to image, I'll say, let's actually for this round, I want you to, you know, tell me what do you feel in your body for this round? Let's just breathe into that and see what happens there. And I'll typically do a shorter set and then they'll get a little bit of movement and some relief. And often that will kind of um, move things along, like allow it to kind of keep processing a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think, you know, that just so highlights that so much of the time, the meaning that we make of the sensation is so much more distressing than the sensation itself. And yes. that, that way of kind of titrating for them, um, like staying with the sensation and not trying to engage with the sensation, the emotion and the story all at once, but just choosing the, um, the one, which at the end of the day is really the one that needs to shift <laughs> uh, by working there and giving them, I think it is a little bit of containment from the, yes. from the invasion of the story. 
Um, and, and staying with in that way helps things shift, but also keeps it more tolerable and gentle for them and is such a reversal of the phobia of affect. And yes. I think sets them up to kind of discover really naturally, oh, this works better. When I engage with body and can stick with the sensation, I get relief um, yes. rather than kind of spinning out into story and actually kind of working up the, the intensity of it even more. Because I do think there's a weird cultural thing in therapy where people expect that it has to hurt really bad in order to heal. Right. Uh, which I think there's yes. a lot of reasons why that's in our culture because it's kind of everywhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be in therapy as well? Exactly. Uh, and, and so this way is kind of healing on multiple levels and giving a little bit of training of a new way to work with themselves and a new way to engage with the trauma healing. I love that. Yes. And I'll probably open up a little can of worms here as I say this, but um, <laughs> so I developed a um, a pendulation model with the MDR that was also another part of this uh, complex PTSD course that we created. Yeah. And um, so what I do honestly now with all my clients, I first just started doing this with people with complex PTSD, pendulating almost every other set between a resource and the processing of this. Yes, stress <laughs> and trauma, and so I started doing it with my complex PTSD clients, and then I started doing it with my clients that didn't have complex PTSD, and many of them were like, "Thank you, oh my gosh, <laughs> so thank much you." Nicer. That was that, I don't feel as like wiped out at the end, and yes. and so I started realizing, oh, this is really helpful, and when you bring in resource, it actually creates more safety in the system and trust. And it, in fact, allows the processing to happen sometimes even more quickly. Right. And so with that, you know, commonly the resources that I use are somatic resources. And one of the ones that I use with a lot of people, you know, in the middle of the session, if it's getting a little bit too much or almost always at the end of the session mm -hmm. is just to ask people to move their joints. Yeah. Yes. Because when we get into a state, we tend to lock our joints, which reinforces then our posture and our, you know, felt sense of, of the experience and it kind of feeds itself. And when we start to move our joints, it's harder for our body and mind to hang on to that state. And so it's a really good way just to like take a break and sort mm -hmm. of, you know, move a little bit in a way that's also can be tiny. So it's not, you know, you don't have to do anything really big, but even you know, sitting or at the end of the session, I might have people stand up and do that. So that's just a particular way too, that I often am I weaving that. thematic yeah. work in. I think one of the, the questions that I get a lot is how in the world do you do extended sessions and how can your clients tolerate that? And I feel like I haven't had that language, but if you don't mind, I will start using that because that's exactly what we end up doing. Yes. Uh, like the last retreat I did, it was a three day retreat and we were doing, you know, multiple hours of EMDR a day, but this particular person uh, is a yoga practitioner. So we did our EMDR work on yoga mats on the floor and she did poses as, as she wanted to while we were doing EMDR oh, and awesome. it, it, it moved things in such an extraordinary way. Um, and the amount of natural containment uh, that occurred, um, her body was just resourcing her perpetually. And uh, yes. it was so gentle. It was profoundly gentle. 
Oh, I love that. I love that. No. that makes you, oh, it was, yes. it was super fun. It was so fun. We had, you know, the, like she had music going in the background and she was like, you know, and it would make me feel really good if you like move sometimes too. I don't want you to feel stuck either. I'm like, this is great. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But it, I think working that way, they tolerate, um, and it doesn't even feel like tolerating. It feels like uh, flowing with the process um, in such a, a gentle way. And the metaphor that my brain always goes to is birth. Um, mm. when, when you're engaging with the birth process, if we stay stuck in one position, everything slows down and everything hurts more. But if we can uh, yes. move and keep our body in motion and relaxed because um motion and relaxation often occur together contrary to you know usual belief right there's a kind of um active relaxation relaxation that we can engage in um and when we're in the birth process if we can do that it is so much more gentle injury is less birth is faster like everything goes better um and so for women that have that lived experience i often use that analogy because it just resonates really deeply with our body of like oh yeah don't make me hold still please <laughs> Yes. I love that. I know. I don't know if you use this word. It's a term that we learned in our master's program, which was eclectic somatic therapy, kind of oh, different okay. modalities. Yeah. But we always use the word sequencing mm -hmm. and that health is really allowing the movement to keep flowing and to, that every impulse, every aspect of our physiology has a kind of an impulse or a beginning. And then it either moves all the way through, you know, like a burp or even, you know, eating the digestion process or a scream. And so it either moves through and there's ease and relief and, you know, rest, or we stop it, right? We tense our muscles or hold our breath and everything clogs. <laughs> exactly. And that's where dis-ease, right? Or pain or illness happens because of these habits we create. And what I, one of the things I love about Peter Levine's work is he was originally um, studying animals in the wild and sort of animal behavior and animal, you know, uh, stress. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we look at is how animals pretty, for most part, other than humans, sequence out the, the fear immediately. Sure. They shake yeah. and they run and they exhale. And then because of our big brains, you know, our frontal cortex, we do all these things to stop it because we're going to get hurt or we're going to not, we're going to get shamed or whatever right. that okay. might be the ultimate threat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Th this probably deeply connects with some of your origin story in terms of dance, because mm -hmm. traditionally a lot of what was um, socially unacceptable in terms of release was allowed and even encouraged in the form of cultural dance. Um, yes. We would have times where we would come together and it was the sanctioned time where we work out our stuff <laughs> yes. and, and um, you know, rage was allowed, right? The, the embodiment of rage, the embodiment of sensuality, the embodiment of all these things was allowed to move in a public way in a socially sanctioned yes. way. And we don't dance yes. like, like not even a little bit. <laughs> right, exactly. And I just think about many cultures who are still very connected to their dance and how much expression and emotion and passion and all the things it's not just the movements right oh, that they're really yes. full body yes full full body movements yeah i i went to an event um 
here in Springfield. It was called the Queer Revival. And uh, it's a, a woman here in town that wanted to um, do a, a musical production specifically for the queer community, but in a church to offer healing for people that had been spiritually wounded. It was a beautiful event, but um, because this is a close friend of mine, I was like on the front row and, you know, halfway through it, I'm in the middle, in the, you know, the middle aisle dancing and I turn around and nobody else is dancing. <laughs> And I, you know, I made eye contact with her because she's on stage dancing her heart out, like just doing a beautiful job. And I'm like, well, I got to keep going because now it's going to be even more awkward if I stop. But there was just this moment of like deep realization of we forgot, like we we weren't great at it. And then COVID happened right. and we went into our homes and we do not remember how to do this and how to yes. move publicly and playfully, sensually mm. and ragefully and everything. Yes. And and I think we uh, really, really neutered uh, a place that was uh, available to us to work a lot of this out. Yes. Oh, I feel grief as you say that. Oh, I, I know. So the God. truth of it. Yeah. In our culture and beyond. But yeah. Yes. True. Oh. So I'll have to say we need to dance a lot more, like a lot more. Yes. <laughs> and together. Yes. So yes. important. Exactly. Exactly. And then I know. You know, I could talk about the somatic stuff forever, but oh, yeah. you also asked about the the nature based connections and work, and so I didn't say that much about this. But I was, you know, even before I went to graduate school to become a therapist, I had been working in outdoor education mm-hmm. at Outward Bound and similar other organizations. One in um, Missouri, actually, yeah. and uh, where we'd go to Springfield and do some programs. And um, so as I studied somatic therapy, I knew that I always wanted to incorporate being outdoors and nature because it had been such a profound experience for me personally. And as a facilitator and educator, I saw so many people having life-changing experiences through outdoor activities and out connection with nature. And so it's been a thread that I've woven through my um, professional work for the Mm -hmm. last 30 years, including in therapy. And so in a lot of ways, but in terms of EMDR, I think one way that uh, arises immediately with that question is, you know, what percentage of your clients calm place is nature? Exactly. Right. So all of the majority, (laughs) right. The majority of people for sure, choose somewhere in nature. So mm-hmm. first of all, I think imagery mm-hmm. is something that we can bring in no matter where we are, what we have access to, and is such a healing can be, you know, can really be a healing resource for people. And then in my office, I have many found kind of nature, I call nature beings, Mm -hmm. so that people see them and nature art. And almost always when I say, look around, find something that pleases you or, you know, you feel connected to, it's almost always a natural thing that people are drawn to. And I might even have them hold, I have a client that her um, resource is holding a rock. And Mm -hmm. so she'll hold a rock throughout the session and every time she comes in like, Hey, what rocks do you want to hold or which rocks do you want to hold? And so the sensory pieces are huge. And again, that's something you can do anywhere. It could be inside. And then I do work outside with people. And in fact, during, since the pandemic, 
I only have been working online or in person outside at a trailhead near where I live. So I can easily kind of go back and forth. And so we, you know, walking outside, even the bilateral with that and having people sort of notice I've done therapy, um, EMDR therapy sessions where the walking was the bilateral and really kind of did the same protocol and had them notice what Mm -hmm. they noticed and did Mm check-ins. I've also sat on rocks and, you know, done a more traditional session with holding the, you know, the paddles in their hand and having the buzzing or the sound bilateral. And um, I just, you know, I think because it's, it's helps bring people into their bodies, right. Our senses help us come into the here and now going back Mm -hmm. to the, you know, the dual attention that it can really work quickly, especially when our senses in relationship to the natural world, often it's something novel, right? So it's not just like I'm in my house and I know my couch and I'm not even paying attention to it. It's like, oh, here's this rock and I can feel the sharp edges and see the different colors and nuances. And so the novelty, I think also really helps people come into the present moment even more. It's also typically either a positive connection or neutral, you know, not always, obviously we can have majorly stressful and traumatic experiences in nature, but often, you know, if that's not happening, there's a lot of, again, neutrality or positiveness and it's a relationship with another being that is more predictable typically than our human relationships. And had so many clients where they feel like they have secure attachment with the earth and they didn't have secure attachment with humans. And that is like, they go outside to, you know, really let go, really exhale in a way that they can't do in their life. So we just weave, there's so many ways to, I think, weave that together, both in the session, inside, outside, and, or, you know, as like homework for people to go do that on their own. Yeah. Well, and I think it's so validating to our clients, well, to us too, but to, to share it with our clients that the relationship that they experience with nature is that is neurobiologically true in the same Mm -hmm. way that we experience co-regulation with other human beings. We experience that with nature in a way that we can't experience it with man-made objects. Um, the, The kind of um, shift that happens in our nervous system. We can do it with humans. We can do it with other mammals and we can do it just by being in nature, especially yes. nature that has that enveloping feeling, that very mm-hmm. held feeling, whether we're in water or around trees. You know, you and I talked a lot about how I feel about trees. Uh, <laughs> yes. started recording. That is definitely a huge resource yeah. for me. I need them. They hug me. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. And I think like sharing that with our clients, if that is true co regulation. Like our body is responsive to that relationship in the same way that we would be responsive to the ideal mother. And so when we don't have that uh, human availability, we always have availability um, to connect with nature. And that, that in and of itself is so healing for people. And I think just a hugely 
underutilized resources is free and available and pandemic friendly. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, I've, I trained therapists to incorporate nature into their work and I've done it so much during the pandemic because people have been like, am I allowed to go outside with my clients? Absolutely. I know. I'm like, yes, you don't have to be trained to sit on a porch or walk down down the trail. (laughs) You know, as long as you're like close to, if you have cell phone range, or you know okay yeah exactly or sit in a garden or a park there's so many ways to to do that 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 are really accessible and right you don't have to have a special training to sit outside or walk outside not at all not at all I think yeah I think that uh idea of permission, like as therapists, we're so hemmed in by our training. (laughs) You know, the example that I give is in my graduate training, my main professor told us that it was inappropriate to drink water in front of your clients. So I spent a long time busting of the rigid Oh my gosh. Talk about lack of humanity. Yes. I know. I know. And so, so, yeah. So like the idea of then, you know, going outside and being playful with a client or, you know, exploring nature and touching bark and rocks, like, oh my God, that was a huge stretch. Um, And amazingly, it was actually clients that taught me that it was okay. They they were asking for it, right? They um, wanted to move. It felt so natural to them. And, uh, you know, I mean, I justified it by saying, well, I'm client centered, so I'm going to do what they want to (laughs) do. Eventually I had mentors that gave me permission. And now I, like you, try to give other clinicians permission, like, yes, please go outside. Yes, please drink water. (laughs) Well, this makes me think, you know, one of the things I always say when I'm teaching is I feel like the essence of my work as a therapist is to normalize humanness. Yes, absolutely. And and so much a part of that is normalizing being in a human body. And if you, you know, this is what has gotten controlled, you know, in terms of the cultural, all the, you know, all the control and different isms. Taming, yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it is confusing you know, it's confusing when we've grown up, first of all, in a culture that hasn't acknowledged and honored our bodies and the wisdom of our bodies, but it's shamed them and tried to control them. And then being a, being therapists where in a, when that's our experience and also many people being told, don't do that, right? Don't be human with your clients. It's a, I think it's a process of unlearning, you know, and a process of, Yes. My friend says rewilding yes. that it that is like a bit by bit because there's obviously we're still having boundaries, right? We're still having appropriate professional relationship, but it's that with being human and with being in a body. And what does that mean? Which I think is a more um, cutting edge way of being with people, but it's also so ancient. Really. I know. I know. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a, a return rather than a discovery. <laughs> yes. We are re-remembering um, the, the way that we naturally are wired to heal. And I'm glad that we are. And one of the um, silver linings of the pandemic, I do think, is that it has reminded us that nature is available to us and something that um, heals us and holds us. And we all need to remember it for a million different reasons more than ever. Um, yes. anyway, I feel like you and I could probably talk about that for a very long time as well. And yes. I, I'm conscious of time. So I want to make sure that in the last couple of minutes, you have a chance to share with listeners, where can they find you and your work? 
Um, what trainings, what books do you recommend to somebody that really wants to kind of move into a more somatic way of conceptualizing and practicing? Oh, great. So my business is Somatic Wilderness Therapy Institute and the website's wildernesstherapyinstitute.com. And we have a wide variety of trainings. We have, or I do a nine month somatic trauma training, which is now online. So people can attend from anywhere, which went online during the pandemic. And I have been blown away by the the capacity to do somatic work online and learn somatic work online. And it's highly experiential. So that's a really like a, my baby that I've been doing for, you know, it was my thesis work that evolved over time. And so I've been training people for like 22 years now in this. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And then I have a wide variety of nature-based courses for therapists online, an eight week course. And then I have this year four in-person five-day courses that are all outside on the land, mostly in Colorado. I have one in Texas I'm going to be doing. And um, yeah. And then a ceremony and rites of passage training. That's so excited. (laughs) Yes. I know. I'm so excited that you're doing it as well. And there's a lot of therapists in there. It's not only therapists, it's for therapists and healers, but it's really looking at how do we really bring in honoring and the sacred and marking our big transitions in a in a in that way into the therapeutic process. So those are that's kind of an overview of trainings that we do that I do. Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe in several months, like after I'm partway through the training, we'll do another interview because I want to talk to you specifically about. Um, ceremony and what it means to be a ceremonialist and all of that. So I definitely I would love that. that we can do that together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that sounds great. And then you'll have lots to also, I'm sure you already do, but we'll have great conversation about what we're dialoguing about. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Katie. This has been fantastic as I knew it would be. And uh, thank you. Having you back again. So um, yeah, feel free to connect with Katie on her website. She's got so much uh, there that you guys can look at and learn from, and we highly recommend everything that she does. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you guys later. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow 
living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. The Evidence-Based Therapist is an educational podcast where we read so you don't have to. On this podcast, we discuss seminal, recent, and relevant research on psychotherapeutics and the embodied relational sciences. How do we know what is evidence-based and how do we use it in our practice? You'll find out on the EBT podcast.